So uh, coincidentally, a couple weeks ago when I preached, I, I shared a story about my 35-day trip to Europe. And I didn't do this on purpose, but the story that came to mind this morning to illustrate some things I want to say is another story from my Europe trip in 2012. This one's a lot shorter and not as fun as that first one you, you probably heard, but I'm, I'm going to share it anyway. Part of that trip, after we were in London, seeing the Olympics at Wimbledon, we went to Marseille, France. It's in the south of France. And uh, our host family, this, this woman, the mom, her name was Anne, she, she went swimming every day of the year. Apparently the weather doesn't get cold enough in France. She could swim in the ocean, whatever ocean there is in the south of France, to this little island. And she asked Brian and I, do you guys want to come swimming with me in the morning in the, in the ocean in France? And we're like, duh, of course, yes. We said yes to everything while we were there. And we weren't like high school swimmers or anything, but, you know, we, we could swim. We like swimming. So we get to the coast and there's a little beach house thing. And she's like, do you guys want a kick pad? Like the, the, the not the ocean, the island that, I'm, that I always swim to is just right there. Do you want a kick pad? <laughs> Kelly knows. Or a floaty or something. And again, like young athletic guys were like, we do not, we don't need a kick pad. The island's right there. Little floaties. Come on. You know where this is going. Like blonde jokes start this way. Like the moon's not that far away because I can see it, right? So, so we start swimming to the island. It's really cool at first. <laughs> and, and then we look up. And the island hasn't gotten any closer. We've been swimming for 20 minutes, and the island has not gotten any closer. And by God's grace, because I'm not usually the tough one between Brian and I, I look at Brian, and he's looking at me like, oh, no. We definitely needed some floaties or a kick pad. So we look at each other, and we're like, and we yell to Ann, Ann, save yourself. Like, keep going. We're turning back. And we turned back, and we had a huge slice of humble pie. I'm pretty much all, I'm sure that all of you have a story like that, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands, a story where you learned the hard way that self-reliance was embarrassing and disappointing. It's hard for us not to continually fall back into self-reliance because our, our flesh is so prone to it. And because in our American culture, one of the core tenets of cultural Christianity, nominal Christianity, which just means in name only is this. You can probably finish the sentence. You've probably heard it before. God helps those who help themselves. What a lie. What a horrible theological tenet of our culture. Nothing could be further from the truth. God helps those who are helpless. That's what the gospel's all about. And we know that as Christians, don't we? We know we shouldn't rely on ourselves, but we have to learn that lesson over and over and over. We probably have to learn that lesson today, this morning, in our gathering. When we fall back into sin, we go to the bootstraps gospel. I'm just going to pick myself up by my bootstraps, God. I promise to do better. I'm going to do better. I'm going to rely on me to obey you. In the midst of a tough relationship, we're prone to rely on ourselves to fix the other person. Or we say, well, I have to go back to self-reliance. And we build these walls in our hearts and say, basically, you're not coming back into my heart. Like, I'm, I'm, you're dead to me. I, I have to protect myself Either way, we, we have to take charge of the relationship and rely on ourselves to fix it. When finances are tight, 
We're prone to stop tithing, to rely on ourselves. We're prone to get a second and third job to become stingy and stop living as generously as we had before. When we get a scary diagnosis, we may be prone to start controlling our diets very strictly, our sleep, what environments we're in, relying on ourselves to make sure that we get better or our loved ones get better. Our text this morning, and and therefore the sermon, will feel very much like a part two from last week, from Josh's sermon. The text this morning will contrast self-reliance with reliance on Christ. Last week, we saw the parable of the persistent widow that taught us to be shamelessly reliant on God because of his character and his love beckons us to do so. Then we heard about the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee was reliant on himself and his religious performance, but the tax collector was humble and wholly reliant on God's mercy because he acknowledged his own sinfulness. And then finally, the final little paragraph from last week, we read about the interaction between Jesus and the little children. He told the disciples to let the children come to him and that those who don't receive the kingdom like the children, namely in humble reliance on God, will not enter the kingdom. So the text this morning continues this same theme with its own various nuance. But what I hope you hear this morning is this. Those who rely on Christ alone will inherit the kingdom of God and experience a transformed life. And we'll see that through this structure of the text. First, we'll see the bankruptcy of self-reliance in verses 18 through 26. And then we'll see the need for reliance on Christ in 27 through 34. And then we'll see a couple demonstrations of reliance in uh, verse 35 through 19.10 in the blind beggar and Zacchaeus. So first, let's look at the bankruptcy of self-reliance. This is a well-known scene. We heard it just read. If you're new to church and haven't read the Bible, that's okay. We, we just read it. Sarah just read it for us. It, it's this ruler. This ruler comes up to Jesus. Uh, scholars don't know for sure if he was a Pharisee or a synagogue ruler. A lot of times Luke uses this word ruler. It does mean a Pharisee, but apparently contextually and in the Greek wording, he might not necessarily be a Pharisee or a religious ruler. Most likely he was an influential wealthy man or a civic leader, potentially a religious leader, but he's known for his piety. The important thing is he's rich and he's a practicing Jew. He's known for his piety. And so he comes up to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In verse 18, and Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. We talked about that a lot in community group. I remember reading that as a young Christian freaking out. What is like Jesus is God. That's a core tenet of Christianity. Is Jesus denying his nature of God is deity? No. Okay. When Jesus says that he's not denying his goodness nor his deity, he is a rejecting this man's attempt at flattery. We'll see contextually that this guy is most likely trying to flatter Jesus. Good teacher, affirm me in my self-reliance and righteousness. And then B he's focusing the man's attention on God alone. He's saying, 
We need to focus this conversation, this moral conversation on God. And then thirdly, I believe Jesus isn't denying anything about himself. He's speaking with the ruler about God from the ruler's perspective. He's not denying anything about his identity. He's just like, okay, you want to talk about God and morality? Let's talk about God and morality. So like I said, this ruler, probably trying to flatter Jesus, asks what he must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus reminds him there's no one good but God alone. And then Jesus reminds him about a few commandments, specifically the horizontal commandments that have to do with the way that we treat other people, the way that we love our neighbor as ourselves. Remember, Jesus is a genius. He's a master teacher. He's a spiritual surgeon. So he reminds him of these horizontal commandments that theologians have called the set from the second table of the law how you love your neighbor as yourself. These would be concrete expressions of the ruler's goodness and godliness, which Jesus knew he wasn't hitting the mark. So he tells the guy that he should know the commandments. And are you obeying them? AKA, are you good? You know the commandments? Are you obeying them? Are you good? And the guy responds in verse 21, all these I've kept from my youth. Let me make sure you guys get the irony. Jesus just told him, there is no one good but God alone. And the guy says, and me too. I've, I'm good. Kept him since my youth. I'm good to go. Sounds a bit like the Pharisee from last week, doesn't it? Pretty self-reliant, isn't it? It seems this ruler didn't even want a genuine answer from Jesus. He just wanted to be affirmed in his own self-righteousness, which is self-reliance. But Jesus gets to the heart of this young man, like he does with everyone. He knows what's in the heart of man. He doesn't need anyone to tell him. Jesus knows his heart, and he knows that A, he certainly hasn't actually met the standard for loving his neighbor as himself, but he doesn't even go there even though he has, he's fallen short of that, because B, he definitely hasn't met the standard of obeying the first commandment. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. And, and Jesus tells him as much in verse 22. It says, and when Jesus heard this, he said to him, something I want to bring in really quick is from Mark's version of this story. Mark adds one little thing that, that colors it in powerfully. It says, Jesus looked at him, comma, loved him, and said, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. In other words, he tells him, stop worshiping idols. You're, you're worshiping idols. You have gods before Yahweh. Your idols of self-reliance and money. You need to sell it all, give it all away, come and follow me. And when confronted with his idolatry, what happens? He's sad. And again, in Mark's version, it says he walks away sad. That's implied in Luke's. He couldn't and he wouldn't walk away from his idol. That's ironic as well. He's standing before the living God, Jesus Christ, creator of everything, and says, no thanks, I like my idols better. And I believe his idol was ultimately himself. I, I think that's the core of every external expression of idolatry. 
the rich guy loved money. We love money because of what it does for us. The man loved what money and possessions did for him. We love what it does for us, the comfort, the way that we can live our lives, the the food that we can eat, the vacations we can take, the power we feel like it gives us. And Jesus uses it as a teaching opportunity, as he often does. He says in verses 24 and 25, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Wealth can be a great hindrance for people entering the kingdom of God. In fact, a seeming impossibility. Because for a camel to go through the eye of a needle is impossible. But Jesus still says, but it, but it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it in verse 26 said, then who can be saved? That's terrifying. Then who can be saved? And that's an expected response after a scene like this. From a cultural perspective, this was a godly and a blessed man. He was obedient to the law and rich. Obedient to the law and rich. Which they believed was a sign of God's blessing. If you're rich, God must be really happy with you for the way that you're living. And he's blessed you financially because of it. There's much for us to learn from this scene. The first is this. Self-reliance will never leave us happy or saved. Ultimately happy or saved. Self-reliance, even on our obedience to God's law, is a bankrupt attempt at earning salvation. The chief purpose of the law is to show sinners how far they fall short and drive them to the end of themselves and of self-reliance and to rely on Christ alone. The ruler wanted to know what must he do to inherit eternal life. So Jesus answered him honestly. I said this at community group on Thursday night. I'm going to say it again. What I'm about to say is going to sound really heretical unless you listen to the whole sentence. So please listen to the whole sentence. He asks what he must do to earn eternal life. Jesus answers him honestly. If we, if we don't have a doctrine of sin or if we forget our doctrine of sin, what that ruler needed to do or what any human in world history needs to do to earn their salvation is this. Obey the law of God. Obey the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God. Here's the standard, though. I'm trying to catechize you guys in this. Personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. The standard is perfect. You must do it personally, perfectly, every millisecond of every day. So if you want to try to earn your salvation, good luck. Because with the doctrine of sin, we understand what he's saying is it's impossible. You, you can't handle the truth. That's what comes to mind from that movie. <laughs> that wasn't in my notes. You can't do it. The law is meant to humble the sinner and drive them to Christ. John Bunyan writes this short poem. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and grants us wings. 
What he's saying there is the law gives us commands, but no real ability to obey them. The gospel gives us the command, namely, repent and believe in Christ and the ability to obey it. Friends, the Bible teaches God must grant what he commands. I believe that with all my heart. Most Christians do, but some who are really into the will of man say you're born neutral and you can obey on your own. If God commands it, you can obey without his grace. I disagree. I think the Bible says he's got to grant what he commands. And the gospel does that. You believe in Christ and, and it's the ability to live out the Christian faith. Obedience without a new heart doesn't happen. So if you're visiting with us this morning and you're not a Christian or not even visiting, you go to this church, but you're not yet a Christian. I love you enough to say hard things. I'm doubling down on something that Josh pretty much said exactly last week. What's your standard for goodness? One of the chief unfortunate beliefs of this culture, most people who don't follow Jesus is I'm a pretty good person, right? And, and I love you enough to say the hard thing. It's kind of awkward, but when you're comparing yourself to Adolf Hitler or your abusive uncle who lives selfishly all the time and drinks too much and is emotionally and physically abusive, like, yeah, you're, good. you're, you're a pretty good person to that standard. But when you stand before God, you will see you haven't met the standard. Your self-reliance will not leave you happy or saved. You can't earn salvation. And God's word even says that our good deeds apart from Christ, he looks at as filthy rags. Christians, if we repented of self-reliance on the day of our salvation, we can keep repenting of it every day. And we need to, we probably should. We're free though. We're free in Christ to see it, to acknowledge it and say, I'm being self-reliant right here. And I repent today of my self-reliance and I turn back to you, Jesus, reliance on you. We don't have to be afraid of admitting it. Isn't that, isn't that freeing? Oh man, I've fallen into self-reliance for the ninth time today. I repent again, Lord. Help me rely on you. One more quick thing for you Christians in here. The app here for us is not that we should all sell everything and give to the poor. I was a young Christian watching a movie. I don't want to throw it under the bus. It was a, it was a biographical Christian movie and about this Christian musician. But, but he said, hey, you're not doing it right, Christians, if you don't sell all that you have and give to the poor. That doesn't apply to all of us in here. But there is a principle. What's the principle? You shall have no other gods before me. So if your God is your money, then you need to just keep getting rid of it. You need to keep giving to the church and giving to missionaries and just saying, I got to keep my hands off this because I'm so prone to worship it. I was telling my community group, you know, for me one time as a young Christian, it was hockey. I've told you guys my passion for the sport of ice hockey, but I found like all I was thinking about all day, every day was hockey. I can't wait till the next time I play hockey. I'm going to watch some YouTube videos on how to do moves and how to score goals. And I remember having some conviction like, hey, you need to take a break. You need to take like a month or two break. And I did. And, and I got to have it back. And now it's not an idol in my heart. Final quick thing for us from this paragraph. We can remember this, brothers and sisters. We live in America, in Weld County, in 2024. I haven't fact-checked it, but what I've heard before, and I think I've read, we're the wealthiest people who have ever lived in world history. Like, we're better off than ancient Rome and all their pomp. Even, even those, those of us who consider ourselves lower class 
lower middle class. We are filthy, stinking rich. I mean, we have climate-controlled buildings and cars and amazing... I mean, just look at the way that we live. And, and our salvation was seemingly just as impossible as the rich in ancient times. But as we know, there's great news. We don't have to rely on ourselves. The impossibility of our salvation has been accomplished. And we can rely on God and his son, Jesus Christ. So let's look at the need for reliance on Christ, verses 27 through 34. After some say, then who can be saved? Jesus responds, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Windsor Community Church, what is impossible with man is possible with God. God's arm is never weakened or shortened. His will is never thwarted or constrained. He's in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. If he wants a sinner for himself, he irresistibly wins that sinner. And so Peter pipes up, he's wanting some, some reassurance. And he says, see, we, we've left our homes to follow you. And Jesus encourages him. And he basically says, when anyone repents of self-reliance and believes in Christ and follows him, they become a part of the upside down kingdom. They become part of God's people. And fellow believers are, are referred to as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think all of us, I hope and pray, I hope that everyone here has experienced that in our church. If, if your faith, if your faith has made you have to sever a relationship with parents, hopefully not because of you, but maybe because of parents or a brother or sister said, your relationship with Jesus or me, and you said, I, had to I have to choose Jesus. Or maybe it's not that, but maybe your parents live far away. They live in Minnesota or Wisconsin or Florida, but you're here in this church body. I bet you've experienced the love of a father in one of the older men in this church, the love of a mother in one of the older women in this church, the, the friendship and love of a brother or a sister in this church. I have, and I'm thankful for you all. There's a love and a kinship, a, a deep sense of togetherness and love for that family member in Christ. And, and, and the Bible says the church is not like a family. The church is a family. So when we become followers of Jesus, we gain a huge family, don't we? In our individual local church. It's the chief way we experience it, but haven't you been on mission trips or just been on a vacation at the beach in Florida and you meet a fellow believer and there's just like, oh, I love you, brother. I love you, sister. Isn't there this like, oh, we love each other. We're on the same team. Like we have the same father. I love that feeling. We get that family in this age. And then Jesus says in the age to come, eternal life. When we follow him in self-reliance and in reliance on him, we get eternal life. But that blessing of the family comes after we've relied on Christ for our salvation. And that's what he tries to get the disciples to understand when he foretells his death in verses 31 through 34. We see that this is the third time that he's foretold his death. And, and when he foretells his death, it comes in very intentional times throughout Luke when they're, when they're saying, you are the son of God, you're the Messiah. And he says, 
and I'm going to die. Or when they're prone to, to self-glorify themselves, like, who's the greatest? Well, I'm going to die. So if I'm going to die, you need to stay humble. You need to stay reliant. So in verse 31, he reminds them that what's going to happen to him will be in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, or as Jesus refers to himself, the Son of Man. It's everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. You've heard it from this pulpit before, not just from me, but we love this here, this church and this network, that, that we believe the Bible is one story. It's not 66 different stories about 66 different moral lessons. It's one story. And it all leads to Jesus Christ. It starts in Genesis 3.15. God is cursing the snake, but he says someday a man is going to be born of a woman who's going to crush your head. He's going to crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent will bruise his heel. And as we understand that in light of the cross, that, that Jesus destroyed the works of Satan on the cross, but Satan bit him. He died on the cross, but he didn't stay dead. But when we read Genesis 3.15, we're thinking all throughout the rest of the Old Testament, other things, but the big one is we're wondering who is this snake crusher gonna be? It wasn't Cain or Abel. It wasn't Seth or Noah or Abraham or Jacob or Joseph. It wasn't Moses or Aaron or Joshua or any of the judges or Saul. Maybe it's David. He seemed, nope, he's, it's not David. Solomon, nope. The kingship always left us wanting. The prophets all died. The priests were all sinful. They had to offer a sacrifice for their own sin before they offered a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Even the spotless sacrificial lambs couldn't completely cleanse the conscience of the worshipers. They had to offer the sacrifices yearly and yearly and yearly. It all points us to Jesus Christ. In him, the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants are truly fulfilled. He's the suffering servant prophesied of in the book of Isaiah. He's the true prophet, priest, and king through whom we can praise God for his saving and satisfying reign as the book of Psalms calls us to do. He's the one who purchases and institutes the new covenant as Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophesied. It's all about him. That's what he's saying. Everything's going to be accomplished that the whole Old Testament has said is going to happen to the Messiah. I am he. So he tells them everything that's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. He knows it's part of his plan. He planned it before he even created the world with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles. The religious leaders of Israel would influence the crowd of Jews to demand, to give him over to the Romans and demand that the Romans crucify Jesus. And later in the book of Acts, we'll read that God holds both the Jews and the, and the Romans responsible for the death of Jesus, but they had to hand him over to the Romans, to the Gentiles, to kill him. Second, he'll be mocked. They'd put a blindfold on him and punch him and say, prophesy who hit you. Third, he'll be shamefully treated. This includes the mocking and every other disrespectful and blasphemous treatment he received. They put a purple robe on him, pushed a crown of thorns into his head, and sarcastically said, hail, king of the Jews. They spit on him. They flogged him. I had to read what, I had to be reminded everything that that meant, and I'll share it with you. They had this stick attached to it was two or three strips of leather, 
and sewn into it. I don't know how they put it into it, but there was pieces of bone and metal. And sometimes they would put a piece of metal at the very end of it with a hook and they called it the scorpion. And they would, they would whip a man within an inch of his life. Isaiah 53 says you couldn't even recognize him. And maybe you've seen the movie. I've decided I'm not going to watch it anymore. He's, he got flogged for us. Sixth, he would die. The author and the creator of life would die for us. Seventh, three days after dying, he would raise from the dead. And the disciples didn't fully understand what Jesus was talking about, but soon they would. And we do. We have the blessing of hindsight. But any historian who is taken seriously, even secular atheistic historian, acknowledges that this is an actual event that happened. And every Christian is humbled in worship at the theological truths of what happened to him, his death and his resurrection. Because his physical death was horrendous. I can, I can never get through that without crying. But then it goes deeper for me, and I, I believe for every Christian, and here's the spiritual suffering he endured for you and for me. The Bible says that he bore the wrath of God for the sins of his people. The Father poured out his wrath on Christ, every drop of his holy and righteous anger for our sin on Jesus Christ. There's no more wrath for us. Zero. But then Jesus died and he, and he rose from the dead, proving that death couldn't hold him and that God accepted the payment for our sins. This, brothers and sisters, is what we rely on for our salvation, wholly and completely. Christ alone. It's not a mixture of our faith and works. Self-reliance cannot even be 1% of our reliance for salvation. Humbly, respectfully, I hope we're proud Protestants. Christ alone. The gospel says, the Bible says, Christ alone, not ourselves. Dear saints, God saves sinners. 100%, not 99% and you do your 1%. 100% you must rely on Christ alone and nothing else. The song says, we approach the throne of glory, nothing in our hands we bring, but the promise of acceptance from a good and gracious king. Self-reliance will not save and it will not satisfy. It only ends in spiritual bankruptcy. We can and need to rely solely on Christ for our salvation. Brothers and sisters in here, keep relying on Christ. You need that reminder this morning. God loves us to ordain that we get to hear this explicitly this morning. Keep relying on Christ. You did it the day of your salvation, and you can and get to do it from here till we feast in the house of Zion. Again, if you're not a Christian in here, 
I hope you get the application for you. A minute ago, I told you, don't rely on yourself because I knew I was getting here. Rely on Christ. The good news of the gospel is that God has made a way for you and I to be saved through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Rely on Christ alone and you will be saved. I got to speed up here, don't I? The final two scenes are demonstrations of reliance. Okay, we're going to look at the blind beggar and Zacchaeus. Okay, so in verses 35 through 43 is the blind beggar. I'm going to borrow from Mark again. Mark tells us his name, Bartimaeus. I'm going to steal from my buddy at the crossing and call him Blind Bart, if that's okay. So Jesus is drawing near to Jericho. That's a little north east of Jerusalem, and a blind man is sitting by the roadside begging. And at this point, Jesus' fame has probably mostly spread through the land. There's probably a big crowd following Jesus, and Blind Bart asks someone or touches someone and says, what's going on? He inquired what this meant, and they tell him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And, and so he, he's heard, I think he, he already believes personally. I believe he already, be, like he's heard about Jesus. He's heard what he's doing. Maybe he's even heard about the sermon Jesus preached. I think it was in Luke four that he's fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. He's going to give sight to the blind and set the captives free. And he's like, this is the Messiah. So he yells out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I mean, calling him the son of David shows he probably has faith that he is this messianic figure bringing in the upside down kingdom. He believes that Jesus can heal him. And those in the front of the crowd rebuke him and tell him to be silent. It's reminiscent of last week's text in many ways. It's like the disciples when they rebuke the crowd for bringing the children to Jesus. The crowd seems to think that the blind beggar isn't worth Jesus' time, and nothing could be further from the truth. So like the persistent widow, in total desperate reliance, he cries out to Jesus again. I don't care what you guys say. I don't care if you rebuke me and tell me to be quiet. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. No peer pressure is going to stop him. Verse 41, Jesus, no, 40, Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought. When he came near, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus says, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. We see such reliance on Christ in blind Bart in his boldness, and in his humble and passionate cry for mercy. We see that he's like the persistent widow and the tax collector and the little children. We see that he's contrasted with the rich ruler who had everything and could see and yet was blind, and Bartimaeus who had nothing and who was blind but yet could see. We see how deeply he understands his need for Jesus. And I, for one, am am convicted by my lack of understanding of how badly I need Jesus moment by moment. Are you as well? Do you, do you like daily, like is, is like, may, may the first prayer of us this next week be, Jesus, son of David, have mercy. Like I need you today. 
I need you today. I'm desperate for you today. Man, I don't live like that enough, saints, and I want to, and I hope you do too. I see this humble, desperate reliance. This, this understanding, this desperation for his mercy is the antidote to self-reliance. We're not going to rely on ourselves when we understand how badly we need him and how bankrupt it is to rely on ourselves. Let's look at the final demonstration of reliance in Zacchaeus. He's, he's traveled from outside of Jericho into Jericho. He's going to pass through, and behold, there's a rich man named Zacchaeus. He's a chief tax collector who was rich. Hmm. We've just seen an interaction with a rich man that didn't go very well. I wonder how this one will go. So Zacchaeus is trying to see who Jesus is. So maybe unlike blind Bartimaeus, Zacchaeus doesn't seem to have heard about Jesus. Maybe he lives under a rock or maybe he's like, he's so short, he can't even see who it is. So he, he runs ahead to a tree, climbed into a sycamore tree because he saw, okay, Jesus is passing that way. If I get in that tree, I'll see who it is. And Jesus comes to the place. And he looks up to him and he says his name, Zacchaeus. Think about that. You're in a tree. You're thinking he's just going to pass by. I'm just trying to see who he is, but he's going to keep going. And then he stops and you're like, oh shoot, this is awkward. I'm in a tree and he looks up and you're like, hey, hey man, Zacchaeus. Whoa, dude, how do you know my name? And Jesus doesn't just say his name. He says, hurry and come down for, for I must come to your house today. What happened in that moment? Because verse six says that Zacchaeus received him joyfully. Now, I'm going to be honest. I think this is uh, potentially speculation, but it is sanctified speculation. I have a sanctified imagination. Here's what I think might have happened to Zacchaeus. I think the same thing that happened to Nathaniel in John chapter one, you know, the story Philip meets Jesus. He, he recognizes him as the Messiah. Philip goes home to his brother, Nathaniel and says, we found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, nothing good can come from Nazareth. Philip says, come see. Nathaniel and Jesus are about to meet. And Jesus says, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel's like, how do you know me? And Jesus says, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree. I saw you. And the context leads us to believe he was way out alone. Nobody saw him. Jesus again taps into his omniscience and says, I saw you. And, and Nathaniel has this moment. Rabbi, truly you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. I think Jesus, because he's Jesus and God can look at a sinner tap into his omniscience and just cause him to be born again in the moment. I think that's what happened with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus come down. Zacchaeus is like, whoa, this is the king of Israel. This is the Messiah. I'm going to receive you joyfully into my house. So, so Zacchaeus has him over. And as typical, the crowd is all upset that Jesus is the friend of sinners. But then Zacchaeus starts describing how he's going to live his life from here on out. In verse 8, he says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. What a difference from the rich ruler. What evidence of a changed life and transformed affections. 
The Old Testament law only required someone who defrauded someone to restore it twofold. But Zacchaeus says, I'm going to restore it fourfold. But radical transformation through reliance on Christ causes joy-filled and abundant generosity. I believe that root comes before fruit. That's what I just got at with Zacchaeus. Reliance on Christ for salvation happens before a changed life happens. You need the root of salvation before you have the, the fruit of a transformed life. But when you have that root, it always ends in fruit. It always ends in a transformed life. Not perfectly. Remember, it's about direction, not perfection. So Jesus says in verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. I believe Zacchaeus repented of his self-reliance and relied on Christ alone and his heart would cha was changed. He would start loving God by loving his neighbor as himself. Zacchaeus was a recipient of the mercy of the son of David, just like blind Bart. And unlike the rich ruler, he joyfully gave his money away to gain treasure in heaven. He was blind, but now he could see. He was lost, but now he was found because that is and was the mission of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 10, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. I've looked up other churches and when they preach through the gospel of Luke, often they title their sermon series, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Brothers and sisters, let me circle back to a few things I said at the beginning. I don't want to leave you in the potential guilt that I might have left you in. When we fall into sin, it's not wrong for us to desire to obey God better. Man, I sinned. I want to live for your glory, and that didn't glorify you. But the question is, are we relying on him or are we relying on ourselves to do that? Are we saying, I want to obey, please help me, grant what you command, help me treasure you more, because if I treasure you more, I'm not going to treasure my sin. I don't want to make a mud pie in a slum, I want a holiday at the sea. Help me in that, God. When finances are tight, it's not wrong to get a second and a third job to work hard to provide for yourself or your family. But the question is, are you relying on yourself or are you relying on God? Are you working hard but saying, God, I need you to, to provide for me and my family? When relationships are tough, are you relying on God to change your heart or the other person's heart? Not trying to change their heart or, or build up walls that you won't let them back in, but saying, God, change my heart, change their heart. Everyone in here, Christians, non-Christians, rely on Christ this morning. Trust him to transform your life as you rest in him. Those who rely on Christ alone will inherit the kingdom of God and will experience a transformed life. Let's pray. Take it, Lord. Seal it into our hearts. Help us rely deeply on you through your son, Jesus Christ. Spirit, I pray that you'd work it up in us, this rest and reliance on Christ. We, we acknowledge that we need you and praise you that in the gospel you have granted what you commanded. You give us spiritual eyes to see your holiness and our sinfulness and Christ as Savior, and we, we leave everything we need to to follow Jesus. Pray for those that haven't done that yet, that they would do it even here and now this morning. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.